You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Washington Post national investigative reporter, Carol Lennig, and I'm pleased to tell you our guest today is the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. She's here to tell us her fascinating story and also give us some insight into the Russians, the war in Ukraine, and what the future holds for the Ukrainian people, NATO, and the world. Marie Ivanovich, welcome. Thank you. We're glad to have you here, and I apologize to the guests. I'll be looking down at my notes a lot because this is a really fascinating topic, as is your book. Um, I'm so glad to have you here, former ambassador, and uh, to talk a little bit about your book, Lessons from the Edge. But first, Let's get to the news of the day, which couldn't be, you couldn't be a better guest for our, um, our audience today after uh, President Zelensky's speech. Tell us a little bit about what you thought of his call to President Biden to be a world leader and some of his specific requests. I think what the world has learned is that uh, President Zelensky is just a master communicator. He has pulled his own country together, inspired them, and united them. And um, he has also united the world. But you know, this speech to uh, to Congress was also uh, a cry from the heart that uh, Ukraine is under attack. Ukraine is playing in uh, paying in blood for um, its fight for freedom, not just for Ukraine's freedom, but really in the fight of uh, tyranny versus freedom, and freedom has to prevail. And so he's reminding us about our own history, how uh, we were attacked in Pearl Harbor, how we were attacked on 9-11, attacks from the air. And significantly, of course, Ukraine right now is suffering from brutal attacks from the air um, because of Russian aggression. And so he's asking for US help. Obviously, he wants a no-fly zone. Uh, if we can't do that, you know, send the plane so that the Ukrainians uh, can uh, can uh, make a no-fly zone happen. And he's asking for a lot of defensive systems. And I think that it's important for us, as we say that this fight is our fight, that this is a battle between freedom and tyranny, um, that we match our rhetoric with our actions, or our, our actions with our rhetoric. And um, I think we at this we are at the point where we should not be taking anything off the table. We at least need to consider all of these um, proposals, requests, and suggestions. And my understanding is that the Congress is doing exactly that, as is the administration, which has done a lot. And we know uh, that later on today, uh, President Biden is going to announce yet another massive uh, assistance package for Ukraine, and that is very welcome because. Every day matters now because lives are being lost. You've commended the Biden administration for some of its uh, very organized efforts to box in Putin and to make him essentially feel a punitive um, weight for his decision to go into the country and invade and, and kill who knows how many people by the end of this. But you've also have some strong opinions about a no-fly zone. 
which the Biden administration has resisted and continues to resist this morning. Tell me what you think, tell our audience what you think about the value of a no-fly zone. I think we need to be seriously considering a no-fly zone for humanitarian purposes. Is there a way to do this um, that uh, is prudent? Um, because obviously nobody wants um, to uh, to widen a war. What we want to do is stop this war of aggression on Russia's part. So are there places in the West um, where we could um, help the Ukrainians with that? And when I say we, I'm not necessarily talking about American pilots. Uh, I think Ukrainian pilots are perfectly capable of doing this. So I think we have a lot of really smart people in our government and in our military that are thinking about all of these things. And I think they need to be thinking as creatively as possible. What are all of the options so that we can um, so that we can support Ukraine and save Ukraine? I want to really dive into your deep knowledge of Vladimir Putin, if we can. Tell me a little bit about what you think his long-term agenda has been. And, and then I'm going to ask you another question that readers ask me all the time, which is, you know, why did Putin invade now under Biden and why didn't he under former President Trump? Yeah. So Putin, you know, this is the $55 million question, uh, you know, what does he really want? But I think he has um, indicated what he really wants over time, over the last 20 years that he's, uh, 20 plus years that he's been in power. And he has um, done that through both his um, speeches, his writings, and his actions. Uh, so uh, I, his, I think he does want to control Ukraine. That is very, very clear. He has an obsession with Ukraine. And um, I think now he wants to make Ukraine part of um, the Russian Empire, part of the Soviet Union, however one looks at it. I think these are legacy matters for him now. Uh, and uh, he is doing his best to make that happen, although clearly he miscalculated. The Russian military is not nearly as capable as um, presumably he had thought. Um, so I think partly it's about Ukraine, partly it's about expanding even further because he has, you know, the day that he um, announced the attack on Ukraine, uh, or I should say the special <laughs> special military operations since to this day, even though we can all see what is happening in Ukraine, uh, he does not acknowledge that there is a war there. And in fact, I think you know that if you say the word war in Russia, that is punishable by 15 years in prison. That is where we have come to in, in, in Russia. So I think he does want to, so he has said that he feels that, um, you know, many of the countries that, um, the new and independent countries that uh, were established in 1991 after the Soviet Union was um, uh, dissolved, uh, that he thinks, you know, some of them should come back to the fold as well. And I think more broadly, he feels that the international order, the rules-based international order, that we uh, established after uh, World War II um, enshrining certain principles like sovereignty, even viability of borders, um, you know, not, not attacking other countries, et cetera. Um, you know, these are good principles to live by, uh, you know, and a, a good way to uh, manage the international order. But 
I think he feels that he um, he can't win in in that kind of an environment, even though uh, this order has uh, ushered in an era of unparalleled um, prosperity, unparalleled security, and uh, unparalleled freedom for uh, much of the world. Um, so I think he's doing his best to um, move the world to a might makes right uh, kind of a world. And I think that that is uh, a real uh, concern for uh, the United States um, because um, that will that will uh, violate, uh, that, that will really um, undermine our national security interests. It will be a more dangerous, more complicated world uh, and one uh, that, um, you know, we need to do our best um, to make sure that um, the values uh, of the post-war uh, post order um, continue rather than values, if you want to call it that, of a dictator like Putin. I think it's fascinating that you use the phrase might makes right, and I think that summarizes his, his world order uh, position very well. What do you say to American critics of the Biden administration who say, we're the superpower, we're sitting a little bit on the sidelines in many ways, allowing this invasion to kill, who knows, again, how many people ultimately in um, a country that is our ally and that we are supposed to be protecting. What do you say to those critics who feel that might makes right is actually working for Putin, even as unsuccessful as he's been thus far in the war, um, he is establishing some kind of beachhead there and people that he views as an enemy are, are dying. What do you say to those critics who say we're not really using our full might? I would say that right now, I'm very glad that we have a president and an administration that is carefully uh, thinking about options. We This is a time for prudence. And while we don't, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, we can't give carte blanche to a dictator like Putin. We also don't want to widen the war. We want to stop this war. Uh, but I, I do believe that we need to constantly be examining all of the options. And as I said before, keep them on the table because we've seen just in the last three weeks that um, steps that previously had been off the table are, are, are not only on the table, but are being implemented. I'm thinking of you know the really strong economic sanctions. I think that um, much of the security assistance um, that we are providing Ukraine now probably wasn't you know something that we had been thinking about two months ago, six months ago for Ukraine, but now we are. Their facts on the ground are changing every day, sometimes by the hour. And I think you're also seeing um, not only leaders responding to this, I think of you know the three brave prime ministers from Eastern European countries who took the train of all things uh, to visit uh, Zelensky you know, in his bunker in Kyiv. Tremendously brave, but because they feel that solidarity and because their people feel that solidarity as well. So I think, you know, I don't know, it's been three weeks of this war. It's hard to believe because it feels to me like it's been 30 years, um, but uh, who knows where we'll be in three weeks and who knows where we will, um, what, what kind of measures we will want to be taking. Do you think there is a face saving way out for Putin and what does it look like, Marie? 
Well, we're hearing today, both, both from the Russian and the Ukrainian sides, that you know they're making some progress in their negotiations. I hope I hope that's true, but what we're also seeing, and I, I would just say that um, Zelensky has um, said publicly now that uh, he's not um, used different words, but he's not pressing to join NATO because the open door is not really open for uh, for for Ukraine. Uh, but I think the Russians are continuing to attack. Ukraine, not only military objects, but civilians and civilian buildings. Um, they're attacking Ukrainian people, but also the culture and the history and, and the country itself. So on the one hand, we have negotiations, but there's no negotiated ceasefire while diplomats uh, and others can uh, can talk. And so I, you know, this is a well-known Russian tactic. Uh, they've done this in other conflicts, including Ukraine in 2014, 2015. So I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that maybe they are making progress, um, but I'm also a little skeptical of Russian intentions. Rightly so. Let's please talk a little bit about the book that you wrote. You spent three decades uh, in public service, a career as uh, a State Department official representing our country abroad not once but twice in Ukraine if i if i have it correctly what what compelled you to write this book uh not long after you were thrust uh without your um permission into the spotlight by former donald trump former president donald trump you know that was a crazy time in my life but um, I got a lot of letters of, of support from the American public, and uh, they said, we, uh, we'd like to hear more. We'd like to hear more about your life. We'd like to hear more about, you know, the challenges of uh, you you faced, and um, we want to hear more about diplomacy. And so, as I thought, I retired in January of 2020. Uh, as I thought about, you know, what was I going to do next, I had the opportunity to write a book, and I thought I would because I... I thought it was so important to try, perhaps through the stories of my life, um, to try to share with people in the American public what diplomats do. I think there are stereotypes about diplomats that we are, quote, uh, cookie pushers. You know, we go to receptions and we offer people food and um, chit chat and have a glass of wine, and it's a um, pretty glamorous life, and that's what we do. And in fact, um, we sometimes do those things, but those are working events. And for an introvert like me, uh, really painful <laughs> to have to go out there, you know, to get another um, reception. Um, but it's important because you're building ties, number one. But number two, you're always, uh, as you're um, chatting with um, your host country interlocutors, you're always finding out information and that informs um, what we send to Washington and how we, um, and, and is, you know, critical to uh, uh, creating uh, a sound uh, foreign policy. So it's really important work. But, you know, there are other things, you know, I started my career, um, you know, managing uh, port operations and the garage and fueling up generators and cars in the country of Mogadishu, where nothing was easy and there was a lot of corruption. 
Um, but it was important that we did those things because I was providing the administrative support for our diplomatic mission. Uh, later on, uh, you know, I, I, I served um, in many countries of the former Soviet Union, and uh, we wanted to build ties with these countries that had previously been communist. Um, and uh, they said to us, we want your help, including Russia. We want your help in um, establishing democracy, establishing um, a market economy here and in progressing. And so that was really important work, but not easy work. And we didn't always get it right, but I think um, mostly I like to think that we did. It seems that you worked in, in several scandal plagued, uh, or I should say corruption plagued countries. What did you learn in places like Mogadishu and in other previous postings that helped prepare you for the corruption you encountered when you were posted to Ukraine? Well, I, it, it's interesting because it was in the writing of this book that I realized what you just said, that um, corruption had been a, a really big issue in a number of the countries that I've been, um, been to um, or I served in. And in Mogadishu at that time, we, you know, I was very junior, but um, looking back at it and even at the time, we did not call out corruption. We didn't have an anti-corruption program as, as far as I'm, I'm aware. It was all about uh, the military, uh, our, our, our security position. This was during the Cold War. Somalia was kind of a client state of the United States. And it was important that we have um, a, a strong military relationship with, uh, with Ukraine. So it was all about that. And we didn't really talk about the things that we talk about now, uh, democracy promotion or anti-fighting corruption, et cetera. And even, um, even in my first uh, tour in Ukraine, which was 2001 to 2004, uh, we were working with the Ukrainians to help them move forward um, towards democracy, uh, and they were, you know, taking some steps in that direction. Uh, but corruption wasn't wasn't really a focus. And so, fast forward to 2014, after the revolution of dignity, and what that term means to Ukrainians is that um, dignity means I'm going to be treated the same way as you are um, treated, regardless of whether you are the president and I am a pauper, or whether you're an oligarch and I'm just, you know, a small business owner. It's all the same law. It's rule of law, and I will be treated with the same dignity as you are. So that that was the the, the core of why people went out on the streets. That they were so angry at the corruption that was stealing their patrimony and not allowing them to to move forward. Uh, and I was really shocked in my first meeting with President Poroshenko. He raised corruption. As an issue and what, st what steps the Ukrainian people were taking, which, you know, my first time in Ukraine, uh, it would have been considered <laughs> impolite at a minimum, certainly not diplomatic, uh, to raise uh, corruption with the president at the time. So it is true that Ukraine had a, had an, uh, a, a real uh, corruption challenge, but it is also true that the reason that we know so much about it is because the Ukrainian people themselves raised up the issue, made it part of a change of government, 
and um, you know demanded that their leaders do something about it. Uh, so I think that that's uh, that's an important thing to understand. Revolution of dignity, what a great phrase, um, and has a corresponding one in the United States. You know, blind uh, lady justice. So a question, yes. if I can zigzag a little bit. Um, you wrote and, and talked a little bit about in, this in your book, how unsettled or disturbed you were the first time you saw the new President Trump speak in his, in his inaugural address. Tell our audience a little bit about what was disturbing to you about it, what it telegraphed to you, because at that time you were already the ambassador to Ukraine. Yeah, so I, I was watching um, from my living room at, at home in, in Kiev, and it just seemed such a dark speech. It seemed uh, not an aspirational speech. When I think of presidents uh, at their inauguration, I think of them inspiring us, uh, not, not with crazy kind of uh, way too optimistic things, but inspiring us with uh, their rhetoric and with their vision for the future. And this was a dark uh, and almost paranoid uh, speech. And it, it made me worry about what would come next. And Marie, tell us a little bit about the things that you reveal in your book for the first time about the meeting uh, in 2017 between the Ukrainian president and the new president, Donald Trump. Yeah, so that was um, a very interesting meeting, um, partly just because until we walked into the Oval Office, uh, we didn't know whether there was actually even going to be a meeting with um, President Trump. Uh, there had been a prior meeting with the Vice President, uh, and then we were placed in a holding room, and we didn't know what was going to happen next. And believe me, that is a really uncomfortable place for, you know, the head of a country, a president uh, to be in. And let me just tell you, as the U.S. ambassador sitting in that room with him, it was uncomfortable for me as well. Uh, and then we were brought towards the Oval Office. We knew there was going to be a photo opportunity, uh, but we didn't know whether there was going to be a meeting. So they brought us into the Oval, and um, when uh, the photographers left the room, I was waiting to see what was going to happen. Unfortunately, then there was a meeting, and uh, the two presidents discussed a number of issues, including the war and uh, in, in the east of Ukraine. And the thing that really stands out to me the most is that um, President Trump turned to his national security advisor and asked whether we have US troops out there. Uh, and I found that like everybody kept their game face on because you can imagine that the Ukrainians would have loved to have US troops <laughs> out in the, the east in the Donbass uh, fighting uh, for, for, for Ukraine. Um, but everybody, you know, kind of kept their composure and it was explained that no, there was, um, while we had training troops in the west in Yavarif at that base that was just attacked a couple of days ago, but no, we didn't have American soldiers fighting in the east. And to me, that was kind of a telling moment that, and I wasn't sure what it indicated. Did President Trump not know? That the that Russians had invaded the East and the Ukrainians were fighting the Russians, um, which would have made that meant that we would be fighting the Russians if we were there, 
Um, or did it mean that he just didn't know where his troops were? I didn't know which was worse. What a statement. And, you know, there were a lot of gaps in his knowledge. Uh, there were also uh, some leaders with whom he had a very special and close relationship. You wrote in your book about how much you saw Trump toadying up to Vladimir Putin. What do you think is the reason he was so obsequious to a world leader who really wasn't um, on par with the United States, wasn't really a true threat to the United States in the way that we think of it? What, why do you think Donald Trump was so, um, again, bowing at the feet of Vladimir Putin? Yeah, it's kind of a mystery. I, I, you know, I look to what others have said about the president that, you know, he just really admires strong men and um, was kind of envious of the um, pretty all-encompassing power that the Russian president has and was, um, you know, admired that and perhaps wanted to emulate it himself. I also wonder, uh, and I'm not suggesting anything improper at the moment, but uh, it's well known that uh, Trump had uh, wanted uh, to, you know, have a hotel uh, or other businesses in Russia, and that goal had always eluded him. And so maybe thinking to the future post-presidency, um, maybe he wanted to make sure that um, that he would be well received. I don't know. Well, Marie Ivanovich, I'm sorry that we are out of time. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. I could ask you questions for another hour, but I will urge our viewers to take a look at your book and learn more for themselves. Marie Ivanovich, Lessons from the Edge. Thank you so much for being with us today at Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.